0: There was a man at an airport and he wanted to buy a bag of very small donuts and a coffee. And so he buys his small bag of donuts and his coffee and he's looking around the airport lounge for somewhere to sit down. But all the ta- tables seem to be taken. There's one table just over on the right side where he sees that there's one man sitting, so there's another chair free. And he thinks, oh, go and sit next to him, opposite him, fine, that's okay. So he goes over, puts his bag down, puts uh, his coffee down, takes off his coat, sits down, breathe, opens his coffee, takes a sip, picks up the bag of donuts, opens it up and takes one out and starts eating it, puts the bag down. The man opposite him stretches over picks up the bag of donuts, opens it, takes out a donut, starts eating it, puts the bag down, smiles. The other man cannot believe what he has just seen. He can't believe that the man has just stolen one of his donuts. What on earth is the world coming to? He thinks, gosh, maybe this guy Don't know, isn't quite all there, or uh, maybe could he say something, but maybe he better not. He doesn't know him, he's a stranger, maybe you know, all kinds of things could happen. Okay, just stay quiet. But he gives him one of those hard stares, you know, if looks could kill. He picks up the bag of donuts, takes out another donut, starts eating it, puts the bag down, and moves it this time a little bit closer to his coffee a bit farther away from the other man. While he's sipping his coffee, the man reaches over again and picks up the bag, takes out another donut and pushes the bag back and smiles. The other guy cannot believe it. He's done it twice. He's stolen two of my donuts. He can't believe it. He's so angry, but he's resolved not to say anything. Anyway, the other man gets up to leave. And uh, the first man thinks, gosh, about time you left, you donut thief. He puts his coat on, picks up his bags, and then he picks up the bag of donuts. And there's one donut left. he takes it out, he breaks it in half, and he puts it in his mouth. And the other half, back on the bag, moves uh, the bag back towards the man's coffee and smiles. He waves, and off he goes. The man thinks, I'm not touching that half donut. You're probably full of infection. Anyway, he looks at his watch, sees that it's time for him to catch his flight. He gets up, puts his coat on, bends down to pick down his bags. And what does he find on top of his bags but his bag of donuts? (laughs) He was He was complaining, it takes a little bit of time for the penny to drop. (laughs) He was complaining that the other man was stealing his donuts, but in fact, the other man was sharing his donuts. What's the punchline? Why do I tell this story this evening at the beginning of talking about justice? Well, because God owns all of the donuts. I'm sure that some of you have heard that story before. It's not one of mine. It's told by J. John. But I felt like we had to start here today with God owning all of the donuts. Because as we think about justice and standing up to injustice and tension, we need to remember that everything that we have comes from God. Our lives belong to him. And when we realise that, and when we're, we're, then we're able to hold everything else a little bit lighter and seek the justice that God's kingdom brings. So a quick recap through the passage. Nehemiah is quite a wealthy individual with leadership power and responsibility within the remnant of the Jewish people. They're building, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. But he finds out that within this remnant, some of the richer folks have been exploiting the poorer ones. Each household has a little plot of land in order to support their family and their livelihood. But some of the people who have been joining the rebuilding effort on the walls haven't been able to support themselves quite the same as some of the others. And they've had to resort to taking loans from other, other folks in the um, remnant and borrowing. But also some of them have got to the point where they've um, had to sell their children as workers means that those children haven't been able to support their own family, haven't been able to muck in in their own family. Just a note that probably children here may refer to teenagers or young adults, but uh, probably not primary school age children going into slavery. But still, it's not a good state of affairs going on. There's been a breakdown of relationships, hasn't there, within this community. Rather than sharing everything together, as they restore the city, some of them have been taking advantage of others. That is how our story begins. And so we see Nehemiah confronting the wrong actions and the attitudes that have been kind of proliferating really through the community. And he demands that everything be put right, given back, even the interest. And so I think Nehemiah points to uh, Uh, An issue here in clear terms, doesn't he? And I think this is a kind of a a reflection, and Jesus brings this up in uh, Matthew's gospel with a kind of Matthew 18 principle. Um, Nehemiah really confronts the issue of injustice head on. There's a basic principle here, isn't there, from Jesus' teaching that if we have an issue with somebody, whether it's their actions, their conduct, their language, We have an issue with somebody or something that someone has done. Jesus tells us to go straight to them first, one-to-one, and to speak to them about what has happened. And then if they don't listen to you, to take along somebody else with you. And if they don't listen to the two of you, then take somebody else. So in this process, the church then uh, discerns what justice is and what to do next. And so Jesus calls us to bring our problems into the light, to be honest with each other and to give each other a chance to change and to say sorry. And here I think Nehemiah does exactly that. He brings an issue into the light, he addresses it straight away and he gathers the right people at the right time and he gives them the opportunity to change, which they do. This idea of kind of confronting each other one-to-one might feel really uncomfortable to us, especially those of us who are conflict-averse, including myself. Confronting someone because they've hurt us or because uh, something that they've done uh, has somehow made life difficult for us or or what we perceive to be wrong can be a really stressful thing to do. I personally thrive on three things. (laughs) Harmony loyalty and integrity. They're my big three. (laughs) And sometimes confronting someone can really clash with two out of those three things. It can really clash with my uh, sense of harmony and a sense of loyalty. Gently approaching someone actually need not be intimidating or scary, but about being honest, about being human to human and even sinner to sinner the German theologian Bonhoeffer, who writes a lot about community and how we are to live as God's community, as Christ's body, uh, says that gently encouraging one another without kind of lording it over each other, without taking advantage or um, patronising one another, um, ought to be something that we're used to doing within the people of God, within the church. We ought not to be really surprised uh, that uh, that we're sinners, <laughs> it should be no surprise to us. We're a, um, a group of people, but we are also sinners under Christ. And so Bonhoeffer counsels us not to leave each other in in our own sin, but to hear each other's to to hear each other's confessions. And so, if our life together and our faith together is going to mature, is going to uh, grow. And we mustn't be afraid of addressing uh, the wrong things that happen within our community in this way. Hebrews twelve, twelve to 15 says, Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy, because without holiness no one will see the Lord. See to it then that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble. And I think Nehemiah clearly addresses uh, this, the trouble that's been proliferating and the exploitation. And he gives the people an opportunity to engage and to change, which they do. I think also Nehemiah also models some commitment, his own commitment to this better way of community living. We have this beautiful image of him shaking out the hem of his robe. It's him promising also to change his actions, for his actions to also uh, reflect uh, what he is asking others to do. We understand that Nehemiah hasn't been exploiting peoples in quite the same way. Um, He has been administrating his monies and his resources honorably. But others around him and who are in similar positions haven't been administering their wealth well. And so he seeks to set an example, promising to do uh, what he is asking of others. He doesn't just stop there, though. In making things right and his administri- his administration of justice, he-, he goes a step further. And what we see later in uh, Nehemiah 5, if you um, read it later at home, is that he demands further food rations. And he says uh, to the rich people, let's not have, let's not. Um, take the food rations for ourselves, but let's share those uh, with the poor folks. He doesn't just stop at making things equal, but he goes a step further. I've been watching uh, the film "Long Walk to Freedom," which is uh, the film of Nelson Mandela's life, obviously previously the book uh, in in a film, but it is uh, on Netflix if you want to watch it at the moment, um, I would very much recommend and I've been moved this week I'm actually not quite at the end I've been watching it in installments, which is a painful way to watch a film, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but um, I've been moved by Nelson Mandela who dreams of a better and a fairer and a more equal, freer world. And he says to be free is not merely to cast off one's own chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Not just cast off one's own chains, but to live in a way that enhances the freedom of others. It seems that he's saying that freedom is bound up in community. It's not just individualistic, but it's, it's bound up in, in broader freedom, in the, commun- in the freedom of a community. And we know, of course, that Mandela refused his own release from prison until the terror of apartheid has ended, until those laws had been changed. And so what does it mean then for us to do justice? Not simply uh, have a sense of justice for ourselves. But to be bound up in justice in our community. What does it mean for justice, uh, for us to do justice as God's people in the body of Christ? And so... Uh, faithful to tradition, I have three points. <laughs> but I'm taking us uh, to, a, to a place in the Bible, which I think is interesting, and I don't expect we've been before uh, recently. Um, I want to take us back to the Levitical law in Leviticus 25, the rules that um, God had given the people for living under his reign, which Nehemiah in this situation would have been thinking back to, so there's three things that are in the Levitical law, which are about justice and are about administrating justice in God's kingdom, in God's people. So the first is release from bondage. Every seven years, slaves were released from their contracts. Every seven years. It, it mirrors the um, timing of creation um, but this is how the law set out that every seven years, slaves were released. And so I wonder then if we're applying this Levitical law into our lives today, or we're thinking about what this might mean as the people of God today, how do we administrate our um, contracts or our agreements with each other and our relationships with each other? I think God calls us to to administer those relationships in honest and honoring ways to people that we are working with, who we're interacting with, whether it's uh, at work, whether it's at church, whether it's uh, in other organizations or other ways that we spend our time. And in honest and honoring ways that offer freedom to others, that speak freedom and encouragement and release to people, to release people into their gifting, into their potential, into their strengths, the things that God has given them, whether they know God or not. I think this points us to to releasing people. Are we people who release others? So that's the first one, release from bondage every seven years. And how can we release others? The second one is gleaning if you were a landowner or a farmer um, in uh, uh, Levitical times, I guess, <laughs> um, you were asked to leave a margin around uh, the edge of your field uh, for the poor to come and take uh, what was what was left. So not to harvest all of your crops for yourself, your own profit, but to leave some around the edge for the less well-off. And we most... Um, obviously see this in the book of Ruth, where Boaz instructs his workers um, to leave, uh, the gle- leave the gleaning um, for Ruth and for Naomi. And he instructs the workers to um, make sure that they, they do, he, he holds this, um, uh, but he also makes sure that the other people in his organization also hold this. So I wonder then, as we apply, as we think about this, how, is, um, our, how are our lives, our organisations where we spend our time, our um, football clubs and PTAs, how are they engaging uh, with people who are less well off? That's the kind of easy financial um, meta-narrative kind of application of gleaning. But I wonder if we can think more personally. I wonder if we can think about gleaning within our diaries, within our weeks. How can we make margins for others? Rather than being completely booked up and busy with meetings and coffees and lunches. Yes, I'm guilty of all of these things. We get so busy. But I wonder if there's a way that we can reserve time around the edge. So that when we meet people who... Uh, for some reason, need our help, our time or our care, we have an easy place. We can say, yes, I'd love to help you. Or yes, I'd love to listen to you. I'd love to take you for coffee. Rather than saying, actually, um, I'm busy until the 31st of July. Could you, Could you wait until after then? <laughs> I realised as I told this next bit in the morning service that I needed to explain it a little bit more. <laughs> I was taught um, at Theological College to um, mark out time in my diary every week where it was, it was free time, that was guarded time, boundaries time, which might be for me, but it also might just be for how, um, an unexpected use through the week. And I was taught to write something in my diary. So that if somebody asked me to do something, uh, which you know could have could be uh, kind of otherwise unhelpful or not really uh, something somebody in need, that I could say oh, I've got something in the diary. It was a way of keeping that time uh, protected. And so rather than that being a reason to a way of shutting people out, it's supposed to be a way of keeping boundary time that if there's an emergency or somebody um, says, actually, Theo, I could really do with chatting to you this week or I could really do with some help this week. I've got some time where I can say, yes, I'm free because I've held a margin I wonder if that is something that you could do uh, with your diary. Can you hold a margin? Can you hold space? Um, And if that space isn't filled, perhaps we can use it uh, for prayer or for inviting somebody over or whatever. So first, release from bondage, the seven years. Gleaning, can we leave a margin? And finally, jubilee. Every 50 years, all the loans and the debts are cleared and outstanding payments are dropped so that from generation to generation, the equality doesn't continue. There's a fresh grace and a fresh opportunity. And so for us, I wonder how we're engaging with the younger generation, how are we engaging with young people, with teenagers, with children? How are we offering them a fresh opportunity and uh, how are we uh, lifting them and allowing them to rise? I wonder if that's through mentoring or offering work experience. Whether that's encouraging young people in their faith and walking with Jesus. Can you use your Friday afternoon at work to connect with the new graduates or the people who've just come into your company? Can you offer to mentor a local uh, a sixth former at a local school? Will you offer to help with one of our kids groups on a Sunday morning or a Tuesday evening? How will you lift the next generation? so that from generation to generation, there is an opportunity uh, for uh, the youngest to rise. So seven years gleaning and margins and jubilee, engaging with the next generation. Finally, as I come into land, why does all of this matter so much? Why does it matter that we do justice in our community? Well, as we started with the donuts, all the donuts belong to God. It's God's heart for justice that all of us would uh, would would share, would come together under God, and build His kingdom together. Nehemiah five foreshadows this new kingdom living that Jesus speaks about, where Jesus redefines our relationships. To one another. The people of God are supposed to live differently, to relate and engage with each other in a distinct way. And when Jesus is uh, asked who his mother and brothers are, what does he say? He says, uh, You are my mother and brothers, not the people who are waiting outside. You are my mother and brothers, the fellow believers. And when the Pharisees ask Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, the one who uh, came from the enemy territory. It's radical relationship. It doesn't conform to patterns of familial ties, of demographic or geography, but it's love that stretches further, which goes beyond. And if we were in any doubt about what Jesus uh, is calling us to do or how he's calling us to live as the community of believers. He uses his final breaths, John tells us in chapter 19, as he hangs on the cross. With his final breaths, he ensures provision for his mother through his uh, disciple, John. He says, uh, woman, here is your son. Here is And to John, here is your mother. He redefines that relationship across uh, all kinds, multiple barriers, uh, male and female, uh, scholar and widow. Jesus is putting them together as a new family. Jesus redefines our relationships and redefines who and what family is. Willie James Jennings says, there's a whole reconfiguration of the patterns of belonging around Jesus himself. And so in Christ, we become one another's responsibility across social and cultural boundaries. But in obedience and in relation to Christ, who has reconciled us together. We're primarily reconciled to God but in choosing to follow, we're encompassed into this new kinship network, a new communion and a new common life together. And so as we think about justice, it's God's heart that we would live together in unity. That all the donuts belong to God. They're all his and he cares about who and how we share the donuts that he's given us. Justice isn't just about how many donuts there are, or what kind of donuts they are. It's about whose they are, and therefore what we do with them. So let me pray. Do you gotta pray with the words of Isaiah thirty five? Strengthen our feeble hands and steady the knees that give way. Make us people who do and bring about your justice. May we be people who work for equality and freedom, who who seek to raise the younger generations, who pray in grace and mercy in our families and our workplaces and our organizations where we spend our time. May we speak goodness and encouragement to each other, And as we hear each other's confession and grow in maturity and holiness. Would you make us one in Christ, our risen Lord. Amen.